Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And my guest today, partly in recognition of International Women's Day, is Aline Anello, founder and president of Legal Impact for Chickens, LIC, a graduate of Harvard Law School, and a true boss. LIC is a litigation-minded nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing lawsuits that benefit chickens and other farmed animals. This means, in a sense, Anello's main clients tend to be chickens. Led by Anello, LIC also innovates ways of enforcing existing cruelty laws in factory farms, as well as litigating against companies that break their animal welfare commitments. As I mentioned earlier, she graduated from Harvard Law School, clerked for then a federal judge, and began after that litigating for animals. Other entries on her resume include stints working for PETA, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, and the Good Food Institute. We'll hear more about legal impact for chickens, its mission, some of the litigation LIC is pursuing, including a suit involving Costco, and more, probably including an influential bird or two, when I speak with Elena Nello in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Also coming up later in today's program, I'll speak with Jeff Shore, owner of Craftsman House Gallery in St. Petersburg, which is presenting an art show called It's Creating Cats and Dogs, featuring dog and cat art by top local and national artists. There'll be an opening reception this Saturday, March 11th, from 5 to 9 p.m. during St. Pete's second Saturday art walk. We'll hear more about this all when I speak with Jeff Shore a bit later in the show. Right now, though, let's talk chickens, lawsuits, and lawsuits to protect chickens with Aline, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813 239 9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Aline Anello on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Aline. Good morning, Duncan. It's such an honor to be on your show and good morning, Tampa. Good morning, animal lovers. Well, so, yeah, first of all, happy International Women's Day to you. Happy International Women's Day to you. Thank you. And again, thanks for joining me. I know it's just after 8 a.m. where you are, not to mention you were out traveling yesterday and last night. So I appreciate our time together all the more. You sound peppy, so I like that. So I don't know if that's just the caffeine talking or whatever, but it sounds like we're going to have a good conversation for sure. I'm excited. It's me being excited to be on the show. Okay, well, that's very nice of you to say. So, of course, we're here chiefly to discuss various aspects of legal impact for chickens, and we absolutely will. But first, both for maybe establishing some context, what I suspect will provide some strands of your broader narrative. Let's go back a ways to your earlier years. So what did animals mean to your family and to you when you were growing up? Yeah, so, well, that's an interesting way you phrase the question, including my family. Um, my, I guess my parents have always been animal lovers. Like, they, um, they always had dogs and fish. My dad had pet fish since he was, like, a kid. He would, like spend all of his money building fish ponds and fish tanks and taking care of fish. Um, and so I grew up like always having dogs in the house. Um, but when I was 11 years old, I really wanted an animal that was like just mine and not like a family animal. Um, and so I asked my parents to buy me like a present that would be an animal like just for me. And I was imagining like they'd probably get me like a hamster or a gerbil or something, but what they got me, was a cockatiel bird and his name was Conrad and he like totally changed my life and changed the way I thought about everything, including the idea about whether it makes sense to even ask someone to buy you an animal as a present. Yeah, no, that's so interesting because first of all, just the way you, uh, 
report that as kind of, you did not suggest a bird at all. You just said, hey, I just want an animal that I can kind of call my own. Yes, we've got dogs here, and that's great, but I'm looking for something that's just a lean's yeah. uh, animal. <laughs> so interesting right off the bat that they went bird with that, but pivotal in some ways just because that kind of shaped a lot of what would later come. So you were 11 at the time, but what Conrad traits kind of struck you the most early on and, and, and then maybe afterwards? I, I would say the number one thing about Conrad that anyone who met him is that he was so opinionated. Um, <laughs> I think that I like. Did, did he write nasty op eds or how did he make his opinions known mostly? He would like scream. If he was unhappy, he would scream incessantly. Okay. And anyone who's had a bird, like a parrot, would recognize that that's what they do when they're unhappy. Yeah. Um, they like just freak over and over again. And then if he was happy, he would like. Um, sometimes sing a song or chirp excitedly or run over towards whatever it was that he liked. Um, if he was, like, happy and calm, he would, like, rub his beak together and close his eyes. So he was just so, it was like, you never were wondering, oh, I wonder if Conrad's happy or not. Like, he was very expressive and made it very clear how he felt and what he wanted. Yeah. Um, which was a huge education to me because, when I got him, I didn't know anything about birds, and I thought they were more like objects than animals. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize that they even had feelings, I guess. That wasn't even something I really conceptualized. And then he immediately, like, made it very clear, like, I have feelings, I know what I want, I know what I don't want, and, like, you are going to know what I want and don't want to. <laughs> yeah, in no uncertain terms, it sounds like old Conrad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm curious, though, um, you didn't know, you said you didn't know much about birds when, when Conrad, you know, entered, entered your life, entered the house. Um, did either of your parents know anything about birds? or I mean, did anybody in kind of the immediate circle or was everybody kind of just learning as they went along? Um, so my dad had always wanted birds. Um, and I think he maybe even had a bird briefly when he was younger. So I think that's where he got the idea, like, this would be a really cool animal to have. But okay. they did not know that much about how to care for them. And I remember we, like, um, I think my parents had to, like, read a book about it. And it was really hard, actually, because he was a baby. So he should have been still with his mother, and she should have been eating food and regurgitating it and uh, spitting it into his mouth. But because she wasn't there, my mom had to, like, mash up baby bird food and feed it him with a syringe every day. Wow. So they definitely had to educate themselves a lot about birds when we got him. Yeah. Um, and now I feel like the whole family knows a lot more about birds than we did before. Yeah. No, it sounds like it was really, you were kind of forced to get quickly up to speed for Conrad's sake and comfort and, and well-being, basically. Yeah. So, so what, you know, besides him being obviously super expressive when he was happy and when he was unhappy, what... Maybe as an 11-year-old and, and beyond, because I know he's around for many years after that. What really kind of first enchanted you about Conrad? And, and then and ha how might that have shifted as you became a little bit of an older uh, kid yourself? Um, well, I guess this is such a simple thing. But one of the things that really influenced me when probably like the first day I met him was just that his body was warm. I knew so little about birds. I didn't even know that they're warm-blooded like people are and mm. other mammals or people and mammals are. Yeah. Um, and so that just immediately kind of struck me like, oh, birds are warm and he's like cuddly, you know, like I want to be near him and he wants to be near me. Uh, and then, yeah, I guess that's the other thing, just that he really craved company. 
Um, like he, the number one thing that would make him scream is if he was alone. And so it was just when you were with him, he would be happy and he just wanted somebody in his presence all the time. Um, and if he could have that, he was like pretty chill. Mm. And if he couldn't have that, he was pretty miserable. So I think that also probably subconsciously drew me to him just knowing like he really needs me so badly. Like yeah. I'm at school all day. He's alone. He's thinking about me and wishing I was there. And that probably made me feel like, well, I want to be there then. <laughs> you know? Right. I wonder if you started to echo that and like while you were at school, did you start thinking more and more about Conrad and like, hey, I can't wait to get back home to hang with Conrad. Yeah, definitely. Especially yeah. as I got older, like um, it became more of a big deal once I was an adult and I would like go on a vacation or something and I would spend the whole vacation just missing him and wanting to be home with him and worrying about him. Yeah. So it made me really hate traveling. Like, I would never... Anytime I had to go somewhere that he wasn't there, like, overnight, I would just really dread it and hate it. Yeah, it sounded like there was a real uh, emotional cost uh, for, for you to be away even briefly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I assume that in nature, cockatiels just spend their life in a flock and they're never really alone. That's kind of the impression I got from him. <laughs> It yeah, like no, it sounds like very, now. very social, and I, I would presume that that's kind of an, just a, a fundamental trait uh, of, of cockatiels. I don't know that much about cockatiels either, yeah. but um, uh, but sounds like you, you know, sort of just anecdotally and otherwise learned a lot uh, about cockatiels as you as you went along. So when, um, so he was part of your life for many, many years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, he lived to be 22, and he died in 2021, which was really, really horrible. Like, I'm definitely not over it. When it first happened, I was just so miserable all the time. But also, it was complicated by the fact that I adopted another bird um, to keep him company, and they actually both died in 2021. So it was a really, it was like the worst year of my life. It was so horrible, and... I still miss them both a lot, um, but every day is, like, better. Like, it's more, it feels more acceptable that they're in the past now, whereas for a while I just could not accept that they were not around anymore. Yeah. Well, it's also tough when they both, uh, within the same year, pass away. That, yeah. That's probably uh, hard to have imagined or predicted. So, so I'm yeah. curious. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, like, maybe I did something stupid. When I um, adopted Zeke, I intentionally thought, oh, I want to get one who's roughly the same age as Conrad because I didn't want them to outlive each other that much because I was thinking um, Conrad would be happier with another member of his species around. Yeah. And so I don't want the other bird to die and then Conrad's alone or vice versa. Um, but what it didn't occur to me is that, like, I would then have to live without both of them and that that would be really, like, impo- like really, really, really unbearable for me. So probably I should have gotten a younger bird that would have outlived Conrad. Um, yeah, well, that's the kind of thing that, that in retrospect, of course, makes perfect sense. But at the time, you don't really think in those terms, right? Yeah, I didn't yeah. realize how bonded I would be to the new bird. His name was Zeke. Yeah, um, and I just didn't really imagine that how like I guess I never really imagined what life would be like after they both died. Yeah, so that's 2021 where you lost them both, and I'm sorry about that. Um, so we're we're in you know the first part of 2023. Any thoughts of uh, 
adopting another bird into your life? Um, I definitely think about it, but I probably won't. Um, it's just every now and then I will see an animal, not even always a bird, sometimes a dog, and I'll think like, wow, wouldn't it be nice to like adopt them? Um, especially if I see them on the internet as they're like up for adoption. But then for too long, I just start thinking about Conrad and Zeke and feeling so sad. It's like, I can't think about adopting another bird or even a dog without just missing them so much. Um, you're kind of jumping so ahead. I'm just not ready yet. Right. Cause you're just, you sound like you're already jumping ahead to losing whatever animal yes. that might be. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what it is. That's yeah. exactly what it is. I'm like, Oh no, they're not permanent. If I could find a permanent animal that never dies, I will definitely eating fried chicken. And it was delicious. Like, I love fried chicken. I hardly ever got to eat it. It was like a junk food to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I was eating it, and it was so good. But then all of a sudden, my hand holding this large piece of fried chicken, just something about the way it felt when I kind of squeezed it reminded me of how it would feel if I put my hands on both sides of Conrad and sort of squeezed him. Mm. There was, like, something similar in the amount of, like, bounce or give where feel like a rock, and it didn't feel like a human or dog body. It was like, oh, there's something unique about the feeling of a bird's muscles, I guess. And suddenly I realized, like, this is a bird, and Conrad's a bird. And that really, 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 really upset me to suddenly realize, like, oh, my God, I am eating a bird, like Conrad. So then um, in middle school, I stopped eating, like, chickens and turkeys and other birds. I would still eat meat, just not birds. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the first moment that I should have known, like, my whole life was going to change and I was going to become more and more concerned about what's going on with chickens and with animals in general. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was, like, the first moment of making a connection between animals that we eat, specifically chickens, and, like, my family members, specifically Conrad. Yeah, I was going to ask at one point, because uh, just kind of getting to know a little bit about you in preparation for our conversation today, that it felt like something profound had happened to you in, in, in your formative years, uh, or maybe a few profound things, but that seemed as, uh, to kind of serve as a catalyst for becoming a, an animal rights uh, activist. And it sounds like, well, there might be other things, too, it sounds like that fried chicken epiphany was critical. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the next moment that I remember being a big deal was um, I was in, uh, well, I eventually ended up going vegetarian because I feel like once you stop eating one kind of meat, it's much easier to think, oh, maybe I don't need to eat meat. Um, so I went eventually went vegetarian, but then one day I was in college, I was a college freshman, and um, there was like this around that said, did you know that Harvard is buying eggs from a company that keeps them in cage? They keep the birds in cages so small that they can't spread their wings for their whole life. And I was immediately so horrified. Like, I immediately just thought about Conrad. And at that point, he was at home with my parents, and I was away in college, and I really missed him. Yeah. And I was like, I put so much effort into trying to make his life okay. You know, like, um, we were always, like, he did have a cage, but it was like, a big cage that he could move around in and we would like make sure he spent a lot of time outside of the cage. And over time I eventually would just never close the cage door so he could always go in and out. Mm. Um, and I felt really guilty anytime that I had closed the cage door. Yeah. Um, and you know, if he was upset, we tried to figure out what was wrong. We would like buy him toys. We would bring him to the vet. We were, it was like, 
he was always separate in him. And I still felt like it was not enough. And, like, it definitely wasn't enough. And I still feel very guilty. But then I'm comparing it to these birds that are in these tiny cages so small they can't even spread their wings. And I was just like, who would do that? You know, like, like I put so much effort into trying to make Conrad's best life better. And I still don't think it's good enough. And these people are doing something so egregiously horrible to birds that, like, I would never, ever in a million years even have dreamed of doing to Conrad. And so that really upset me. And yeah. um, I was like, the email said, if you're against this, come to this meeting at this certain time and place. And I was like, well, obviously I'm going to go. And in my mind, this was like a really big atrocity. And I expected that the meeting was going to be held in like an auditorium and that there would be like hundreds of students there because I know that this email went to the whole student body and it yeah. seemed so obviously evil to me. And then when I got to the meeting, it was actually held in like a small bubble tea shop and there were only like maybe five people who had come. Mm. And so that was my ne- and a big lesson to me, just like, oh, why did only five people respond the way I did? I thought it would be hundreds of people that responded that way. And so then I learned that, like, most people, I guess, are still where I was before I adopted or before my parents fought Conrad, where I just, they don't understand or, like, relate to birds as much. Yeah. And then I also realized that even the organizers of the event knew that because they picked, like, a small venue. Like, they knew it would only be a few people that were Right. So yeah. that was really, like, kind of shocking to me and made me feel even more of an obligation to help the, bird, the chickens because I was, like, Am I one of the only people that realizes this is an atrocity? Like, that gives me more of an obligation to do something because if I don't do it, like, maybe nobody will do anything. I mean, yeah. there were other people, but not enough. Right. Um, and then when I got to the meeting, the first thing they said was just, like, a huge, I don't know, just really kind of eye-opening in a really disturbing way. They said, okay, we actually made the email sound not as bad because we didn't want to scare people. The truth is it's not just Harvard getting birds getting eggs from these birds that are in battery cages, it's actually the whole U.S. egg industry, which is no longer true. Like, in 2022, the egg industry had started to move away from cages, so now it's still maybe the majority, but not the whole industry. Yeah. Um, like, cage-free eggs are now much more widely available, but um, at the time, I didn't even know that most birds used for eggs were kept in tiny cages. It was, like, it was super horrific revelation for me, and, um, yeah, if not for Conrad, I would have never known or cared about any of that. Yeah, it's so interesting how Conrad and your life with him really, really influenced your thinking, your actions, and um, and again, the people organizing that first meeting and sent that message, they knew it would be a small turnout, and I guess probably just the other people were, whether they had birds or a similar Conrad experience, they had something that prompted them, but at that point... It was clear, I think, to the organizers that we aren't going to get many people, so this this, this little shop or this little room is going to be plenty. But, yeah. but maybe as we start to inform people more specifically about what the, what the actual issues are, maybe that will widen out and uh, we'll pull more people in. I definitely actually think that's true because I didn't set the story up on purpose, but it just occurred to me that Harvard is now 100% cage-free, and at the time, they were not at all. And I actually, the reason I was traveling is I just came back from giving a talk at Harvard Law School, and it was about impact litigation for animals, and their, the room was filled with 30 people, and that's just at the law school. So I think if I were to have been at the college, there's probably even more people. Um, still not like the what I was imagining, like an auditorium with hundreds of people, but I do think in that modern microcosm of Harvard that animal action has become a really big, like, issue there's it's like a academic issue now and yeah. um 
there's a lot more focus on it. Um, and, and in fact, Legal Inductive Chickens got a big grant from Harvard Law School to do the work we're doing. So in that one little part of the world, it has gone from like a super niche issue to like a much more mainstream issue. Yeah. It's still not as mainstream as I think it deserves to be. No, but I think I think similar things are happening where there's pockets of awareness and understanding, just like what's happening at Harvard Law School that you just described happening elsewhere and pretty soon those pockets may start to you know connect with each other and so then they're not just pockets they're they're it's a more of a widespread thing but it's it's slow and gradual it seems like but it but it's happening so you know the thing is to not complain that it's moving super slowly (laughs) as much as like look at the progress we're making so so in the wake of that that meeting small with the small turnout and kind of the the further revelations that were shared there is that where you kind of Felt like, okay, I'm now going to take some action here. I'm going to maybe be an activist of some kind. or, or... Yeah, yeah. I, I then, that's basically when I kind of decided I will be an activist. Um, I still didn't think it would be my full-time career. I thought it would be realized there were people who, or it just didn't occur to me that that is a full-time career for some people. Yeah. I just thought this is something I need to do on the side in addition to, like, whatever I need to do to, like, make money and be a productive member of society. Yeah. Um. So going to this campaign that they were organizing, which was a cage-free exit Harvard campaign, and we collected signatures, and um, that was a super cool opportunity. It was led by this really amazing woman named Annalie Scoops. I don't know if she, just in case she hears this, I want her to know. She's amazing. Um, and I eventually, those people, once they convinced Harvard to go 50% cage-free, which, like I said, Harvard eventually went 100%, um, thanks to more activists years later, but... Once they got Harvard to go 50% cage-free, they then were like, okay, let's call this a victory and move on. And then they started the Harvard College Vegetarian Society, which was basically all about just educating people about factory farming and sharing vegan food. So I got really involved in that. Um, and I just loved doing activism. It was my favorite part of college. Um, so then at some point, the next big change was my friend Jessica Luna, who ran the Harvard College Vegetarian Society, Um, she said to me, like, well, I was looking at what internship should I do this summer? And she said, have you thought about interning at an animal rights organization or an animal welfare organization? Um, and that was the first time that I heard these concepts talked about as like career. Mm -hmm. Um, and at first I was like, well, my parents, there's no way they would let me. So I actually called my parents to say like, what would you think if I interned at like an animal rights organization this summer? And they said, oh, yeah, that's fine. I don't think they realized what they were getting, like, what was going to happen <laughs> if they said yes. Okay. So I I got an internship at the Humane Society of the United States. It was awesome. And then when I was interning there, I just, like, realized I'm never going back. I yeah. just realized, like, it's this... so good to be on the good guy side. Right. No, it sounds like right in that period, uh, and maybe especially with that internship at HSUS, you realize, hey, I think this might be my life's work. Exactly. 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 I was like, oh, I didn't know what I wanted to do as a career. And this is obviously it. Um, so now I'm not going to ask parents permission anymore. I'm just, this is just happening. Nobody can stop <laughs> me. Um, yeah. I'll just keep them posted. But perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. more just more just an informed situation and less an ass situation. Gotcha. Uh, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Aline Anello, founder and president of Legal Impact for Chickens, LIC, a litigation-minded nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing lawsuits to benefit chickens and other farmed animals, led by Anello, a Harvard Law, uh, Law School graduate. 
LSE also innovates ways of enforcing existing cruelty laws in factory farms, among other pursuits. If you have a question for Aline or would like to offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So somewhere between that meeting and, and maybe right at that meeting or shortly thereafter, certainly probably well before the internship with, with the Humane Society of the United States, you sort of be, probably became well more uh, steeped and aware of factory farming. Yeah. So. Yeah, I guess. No, I was just going to say. Big revelation. <laughs> yeah. No, that's the thing. And since that's so, I think, pivotal to, to what you did then, but I think maybe more to the point what you do now. Uh, before we proceed any further, just to ensure everyone listening is familiar with what exactly factory farming is, can you just take a moment and describe factory farming, how it works, and what goes on behind closed doors, with our, especially with our chicken friends? Yeah, so um, I guess factory farming is kind of, I guess it's a derogatory term. People in the industry probably don't like that term. They would probably call it um, concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs. But basically it refers to the modern way that most animal agriculture is done, definitely in the U.S. and also in a lot of other countries. Um, and this involves keeping large numbers of animals confined in an area. And it's sort of a numbers game of producing as many animals as possible, as quickly as possible, knowing that some portion of them will probably die before they reach slaughter um, because the conditions are so bad, but there are so many animals that still is profitable. So one of the disturbing things about factory farming is it sort of turns the relationship between people and animals on its head because um, historically there's been an understanding when you're farming animals that if you don't treat them well, they won't produce a lot of eggs or meat and they won't live and therefore you won't make money. And with factory farming, it's possible to still make money even though the animals are suffering a lot just because um, there's so many animals. You're playing the percentages, basically. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, So in the U.S., for example, 9 billion chickens are raised and killed in um, in the factory farming industry every year, and these are mostly chickens used for meat, which uh, people in the meat industry refer to as broiler chickens. There's also chickens used for eggs, which uh, people in the egg industry refer to as layer chickens or layers. Um, and they're both treated really, really badly in a lot of ways. So the ones used for eggs, um, they're both bred to be very different. Like the ones used for eggs are bred to lay a lot of eggs really fast. And the ones used for meat are bred to grow really big really fast. Yeah. And because they're bred so differently, um, birds that are bred for eggs are thought of as not useful to the meat industry in the U.S. And so um, if a bird is bred for eggs, but they're born male, as 50% of all birds usually are, then the egg industry will just kill them as soon as they're born um, or as soon as they hatch. And then if they're female, they usually end up in these tiny little battery cages where they can't spread their wings for their whole life while they lay a huge number of eggs. Um, Although there's been a huge campaign across the U.S. to fight against battery cages, um, and some states have outlawed them, and some companies have pledged to phase them out, um, but they're still very common. And then in the meat industry, um, luckily birds in the U.S. used for meat are not kept in cages, but they are bred to grow so big so fast that often 
a lot of them can't stand up under their own weight. Um, and they're kept crowded into these dirty factory farms where they're living amongst their own feces. Um, and then the way that they're slaughtered is generally a really gruesome, violent method. Um, whereas I, I don't want to go into the slaughter because I don't know if that's like, appropriate for the radio, but basically their slaughter is worse than how cows and pigs are slaughtered. Um, but again, there's been a movement in some companies to try to improve the way chickens are slaughtered, but that is like very nascent movement that hasn't taken over yet. Yeah. So with that in mind and kind of with what you learned at the meeting and then learned from your internship, I guess uh, sort of almost a rhetorical question, but what prompted you to decide to attend law school? I mean, was it kind of that you felt like it would propel you into becoming a more effective animal activist or were there other reasons as well? Yeah, well, it's actually not a rhetorical question in my case because my answer is sort of not what you might expect. Um, I just, I already knew I was going to do animal rights because yeah. I'm already working at PETA, but I just thought I would basically be respected more and have a more fun job if I was a lawyer. Um, my dad and brother and sister were and are all lawyers. Okay. So being a lawyer was like a very present idea in my mind. Sure. And um, in fact, I felt like my parents would have been happier if I had gone to grad school of some sort. Um and so I was just sort of thinking, okay, I know I'm going to do animal rights forever, but I see that the animal lawyers are winning cases, getting a lot of recognition. Their life seems really fun. I just think if I'm going to do this forever, I'd rather do it as a lawyer than as um, what I was before, which was like a special projects coordinator. Yeah. So, yeah, there wasn't, I feel like a lot of people assume there was some very ethical reason for going to law school. It was much more self-interested. It was just like, this sounds like a more fun way of doing animal rights. Well, and it also sounds like it's kind of the uh, the family business, as it were. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. It seems like something I could do, and I'm so lucky because I get a lot of help from my family. So when I have a question, I'm often contacting my dad or my sister or my brother to ask them. And if they don't know, they often have a friend who knows. Um, or if I need a lawyer to represent somebody for something, they often one of the three of them can often find somebody that specializes in that area in that seat. So. That's it great. It's like easier to be a lawyer if your whole family is lawyers. Yeah, no, you've got like sort of a legal brain trust right within the uh, siblings and your uh, parent there. So uh, yeah, not, not yeah. bad. So, and again, having made that decision to, to go to law school, it's a shame you couldn't do any better than Harvard Law School. That's I'm very sorry to hear that, Elaine. <laughs> no, that's great. Well, I did get rejected from Yale, where, which was my top choice. So. Oh, well, there you go. See? But I love Harvard. It's not a shame. I, Harvard is amazing. I yeah. feel guilty saying that. Oh, so okay. So before we get into addressing legal impact for chickens, uh, more specifically, and I promise we will do that in just a moment. Let's discuss your other forays into animal activism that preceded you launching LIC. Because so we've talked about the internship at, at HSUS. You also had stints working at PETA, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, and the Good Food Institute. Um, I wonder if you could give me a brief tour through each of those stints, and more to the point, maybe how each may have helped shape your vision for legal impact for chickens? Oh, yeah. Okay, definitely. Um, so PETA was super formative. I feel like my time at PETA is one of the most formative things that have happened in my life. I hope. I, like, um, aspire to be the way that I feel like PETA trained me to be. Mm -hmm. So, um, first of all, it was super fun. Um, it was just very exhilarating. Like, you're around... There's this culture at PETA of... What's happening to animals is a crisis, which I agree with, and we need to do everything we can to stop it. 
But there's also this culture of like one of the things that we can do and need to do is be really creative and open-minded. And so everyone was encouraged to like brainstorm and come up with ideas. And there was just like no bad ideas culture where people aren't, PETA isn't necessarily going to do everything you say, but you are like encouraged to say any idea and people will listen and like write it down on the list of ideas mm-hmm. that are later. Yeah. Um, and you're not going to get in trouble for having your idea be sound crazy. So that was very exhilarating. And there's just a lot of action, like things happening all the time. Um, a lot of the people working there were like around my age, which was really fun when I was straight out of college. Um, it just felt like you can do a million things and there's so much possibility and like stuff is really happening. And then the other thing about PETA that I really liked that I try to emulate, I don't think I succeed necessarily, but I aspire to is like, there's a culture of perfection and excellence. So everything that PETA writes that goes out into the world, like online or um, in a written, in like a printed form is always reviewed. Like if I would write something, then my boss would review it. And then the head of the organization would review it. And then, um, it would go to the editing team where they make sure that like the commas are the are in the right places and that the um, m dashes and n dashes and hyphens are correct and like everything is just kind of correct and excellent. Yeah. Um, I felt like that is something that is of I think a lot of other groups could learn a lot from PETA from having that culture of like something might go wrong because it's hard, but nothing's going to go wrong because we were sloppy. Like yeah, everything is like double-checked and triple-checked, and um, I love that about it. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think there's a lot of people, even pretty staunch uh, animal advocates, who have plenty of criticisms about PETA. But it's interesting that 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 was so much part of the culture because they obviously are aware or learned over the years that let's not you know, open ourselves to criticism just because we we written an illiterate press release or we've got... Yes, exactly. So if that's, you're going to criticize PETA, it's going to be for something that they chose to do knowing you could criticize them for it. You're not going to criticize them for something they did by accident. Um, I mean, obviously everyone makes mistakes, but I think PETA is more, more cautious than most. Um, So yeah, that was really cool. And I guess I also learned, I went to mostly wanting to help chickens, but I learned a lot more about factory farming in general and all the other horrible things people do to animals, including how horrible the pet trade is. So like, as an adult, I would never buy a bird again. If I ever were to have an animal, I would adopt them. And I feel, I already had been feeling guilty for buying Conrad because I realized that he was a baby and he should have been with his mother yeah. and his father. But, um, but, but, but that's the key thing of, of yeah, but that's the key thing about a lot of this work is you didn't know then, your parents didn't know then. So yeah. now you do know and other people have since learned and whatever, but sometimes those things are not done in any way other than just uh, I was unaware yeah, totally. So at PETA, I learned all all about the pet trade and wild animals and how wild animals, like, suffer in captivity and all these different things, animal testing, all these things I didn't know about. Um, and, yeah, just I know it is International Women's Day, but because I mentioned by accident that Conrad should have been with his mother, I just wanted to say that I also learned that cockatiel fathers are really good fathers. They are so attentive, and they take care of the babies just like the mothers do. So even though it's International Women's Day, Shout out to all the male birds out there that are being good fathers. There you um, go. And so, 
Okay, so Elaine, I'm going to actually change my, my question because okay. I'm, I'm just afraid we're going to run out of time before we get to some of the more specific things I was hoping to address about legal impact for chickens. So so leave it. let's leave it at PETA. I'd love to hear more about what happened at the Animal Legal Defense Fund and the Good uh, Food Institute, but maybe we'll come back to that in another conversation we have subsequently. But let's right now oh, be cool. talk a little bit about legal impact for chickens. So. Before launching it, what, what kind of doubts or trepidations did you have? Did you feel like, hey, I know what to do. I've been at these organizations. I have my own kind of sensibility, my experience with Conrad. I'm ready to go. Yeah, okay. So I feel this is a perfect question for International Women's Day because I'm a woman, and I have fantasized about starting a nonprofit for a very long time, ever since I started working at PETA, like maybe 10 years ago. But one of the things that held me back, probably the main thing that held me back was just self-doubt, and I felt like, who would, who am I to start my own group? You know, like yeah. I'm more meant to like obey somebody else's instructions than to invent my own instructions. Um, and I think that probably relates a lot to me being a woman. I mean, I don't know, probably a lot of men feel that way too, but um, I definitely think it might be especially common for women to have that feeling. So I think that I took so many years to do this fantasy I had of starting a nonprofit, largely probably because of being a woman and just having this idea that, I'm expected to, like, be helpful to other people, not to be the one who's doing something and asking people to help me. Yeah. Um, not that anyone told me that explicitly. It might be just observing how other women act and trying to emulate them or who knows. Um, and, again, probably there's a lot of men that have that same feeling. Like, who am I to be making my own decisions and asking people to help me with what I want to do? So um, one thing that, the thing that kind of broke me out of that mindset and pushed me to actually do it was when the birds died. So it was 2021, and I was working at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. I felt like it was basically my dream job because I was litigating for animals, especially mostly on farmed animals, and that's my passion. It was really fun. The, it was like a pretty good setup, but the only thing missing was that I had this dream of being a leader and being able to like do things exactly my way that I had uh, envisioned rather than having to do it the way that like the organization I was working for envisioned. Um, and be, I had a dream of going out and finding donors that supported my vision rather than having to, you know, use money from donors that maybe wanted something else to happen and yeah. negotiate the right to do it my way. So um, when the birds died, I think all my fears and self-doubts kind of melted away because I was, I guess, pretty depressed and I couldn't really imagine feeling any worse than I already felt. So yeah. I thought, like, what do I have to lose at this point, you know? Worst comes to worst, if I'm poor, I don't have to worry about not having money for the birds' veterinary care because they're dead anyway. So I might as well just see what happens and try it. So, yeah, that's it's a sad story, but also another happy part of it was I also thought it could be a way of honoring them if I put some chickens in the name. Yeah, that's exactly um, what I was about to say is it seemed like you took great inspiration from Conrad and, and Zeke as well uh, in, yeah. in forging ahead with this and sort of saying, okay, you know what, I'm ready to launch my own thing and, and uh, I'm going to keep them in mind and sort of, you know, honor them as I go. Totally. Like if I'm going to be thinking about them all the time, rather than having that be a thought that makes me lay in bed, why not have it be a thought that makes me work and do stuff? So that yeah. doing stuff is better than doing nothing. I mean, we all need time to think, but you don't need to spend a whole, you don't need to spend more than one year doing nothing but thinking. At some point, it's not healthy. You need to start acting. Yeah. So again, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Alina Nell, Harvard Law School grad and founder of Legal Impact for Chickens, an organization which brings lawsuits to protect and benefit chickens in factory farming settings and elsewhere. 
invite you to join the conversation in our last few minutes, but you're welcome to join the conversation at 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So LAC is pretty new. Um, how is it going so far, do you think? I think really good. Um, so our first lawsuit um, was very well received. It's a shareholder derivative case against Costco's executives. And we're representing Costco shareholders who are suing Costco's executives for harming Costco by causing the company to illegally neglect and abandon chickens. Mm. Um, these are chickens that Costco is breeding and raising in order to supply itself with cheap meat for the chicken that it sells at its stores. Yeah. Um, and that lawsuit has been covered by the Washington Post, uh, Yahoo, Fox Business. CNN business, like all these different um, outlets. Um, there's now multiple professors that are teaching about it at their universities. Um, and currently we're at the motion to dismiss stage. So Costco's executives um, are arguing that it, the case should not be able to proceed. And we're arguing that it should be able to proceed. So we are waiting. Um, we have a hearing coming up and then we're going to wait for a judge to decide who's right on that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, I think it's exciting that um, our first case is so well-received, and we were able to, um, we had amazing donors that were able to fund us enough that we could hire other people. So right now we're a team of three. There's me, there's an amazing litigator named Denise Morris, and our newest litigator, Sarah Gold. Yeah. Um, and so we're hoping to be bringing more cases and trying our best to win the Costco lawsuit. Yeah, I was going to note again, uh, because this is International Women's Day, that it seemed like a couple of sharp uh, women, much like yourself, had joined the fold. And so uh, it just seems like um, legal impact for chickens is sort of fortifying and, and going to take on more things. And it's something that seems like already recognized for kind of the, uh, I guess, the inventive nature of the Costco suit. Yeah. And yeah, sharp is definitely true. Um, Denise and Sarah are both so awesome and committed to animals and nice and smart and like hardworking. And it's just like crazy that I get to work with them and that all three of us get to just like do this legal impact for chicken thing. That's so great. Well, let me let folks know the, uh, the website to find out more because we, uh, there's a lot we didn't get to today, but hopefully we'll talk again down the road. So legalimpactforchickens.org is the website. We've been speaking with Aline Anello, the, uh, the founder I'm president of Legal Impact for Chickens. So, Elena, with the time zoomed by, there was other things I was hoping to get to, but that's just because we had such a great conversation along the way. So we will uh, talk again down the road and get caught up on what else is going on with new cases and new triumphs, no doubt. So thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you. It was a huge honor to be on the show. Have a wonderful day, Tampa. Uh, have a wonderful day, all the animal lovers who are listening. Keep doing what you're doing. All right, you too. Thanks so again. Bye-bye. In a moment, we'll speak with Jeff Shore of Craftsman House Gallery in St. Pete about the art show they're presenting called It's Creating Cats and Dogs, featuring an array of cat and dog art. The opening of the show will be this Saturday, March 11th, uh, during St. Pete's second Saturday Art Walk. We'll get into that in him shortly. Right now, though, let's step into the comedy quarter with a piece that feels somewhat fitting after our conversation with Aline. This is Mike Kaplan with a piece called Ducks and Vegetarianism in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I was in a Chinese restaurant recently and I was thinking about how a small duck is called a duckling. 
and I canceled my order of dumplings. Because I am a vegetarian, so... Do we have any other vegetarians here? That is a little better than I got at the steakhouse. Great. I did comedy in a steakhouse. Honestly, I was like, hey, are there any vegetarians here? Finally, one guy in the back was like, this is a steakhouse. So I moved on. I was like, okay, any Jews here? This is a steakhouse. We eat Jews here. So I left. Like, people hear that. They assume I'm always into other kinds of activism. They're like, oh, you're a vegetarian. Do you care about the environment? No. I eat the environment. That's what we do. It's made of vegetables. But, uh... I do eat some weird things like pickle sandwiches, like a nice dill pickle on sourdough bread or a sour pickle on dildo bread. And uh, that's just a word one, everybody. Good work. Good work. I think words are important. They're really all that separate us from the mimes, you know? So. Here's another word, pescatarian. You know that one? That means my mom, she says she's a vegetarian, but she's really a pescatarian, which means she eats fish in addition to lying about being a vegetarian. That's what she does. She actually says, she's like, I'll become a vegetarian when fish becomes a vegetable, which is sadly not the way evolution is heading, so. Unless people are getting dumber and animals are reverting back into plants, which would be all right, but. All right. That was Mike Kaplan. Today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Ducks and Vegetarianism, taken from his album, Vegan Mind Meld. Now it's time to speak with Jeff Shore about this animal-oriented art show happening at Craftsman House Gallery in St. Pete with a special opening that's set for this Saturday, March 11th. This is Jeff Short on Talking Animals on WMN. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. How are you? Great. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. For those listening who may not be familiar, tell us a little bit about Craftsman House Gallery to begin with, just what, what goes on there, not counting the art show we're about to spotlight here. Okay. Well, we've been here for 21 years, seeing a lot of change and growth around us in St. Petersburg, of course. And we basically focus on things we're passionate about, which are art, uh, food. We have a cafe and music. We present uh, about once a month. We present concerts with nationally touring musicians. As a matter of fact, not this weekend, but next weekend, uh, Friday the 17th, we have Ellis Hall. And Saturday the 18th, we have Chuck Brodsky. So two WMNF favorites. Great. Yeah, for sure. So tell me about the genesis of this uh, art show. It's creating cats and dogs. Well, I mean, another thing we're passionate about is our, our dogs and, and, you know, we see everybody really passionate about their cats and dogs. St. Pete recently was named the number one dog-friendly city in the U.S. And then on our block, which I said we've had a lot of development, all of a sudden we have the Peters Park Natural Pet Food opened up across the street from us. And on the other side, we have uh, dog groomers. And on the corner, hoping to open in about a month, is a new dog bar. Uh, and it, And they've put a couple at least a couple pools in, so uh, a wet dog bar for the dogs and, wow. then, of course, for their owners, you know, full full liquor bar. So Yeah. And then there's three dog-friendly cafes, so since we're the most dog-friendly city in the U.S., we're calling our block the most dog-friendly block in the U.S. That seems reasonable and uh, sounds like living up to the initial uh, billing there all, and, more, and then some, so that's great. So how many uh, pieces of uh, cat and dog art do you think will be featured in this uh, in this show? Uh, I don't have the exact count, but I know it's over 100. Wow. You know, a, a number of, uh, you know, the top local and national artists, and we kind of searched out for ones that feature cat and dog art, and I'll 
different mediums, everything from blown glass to clay, uh, wood, metal, uh, paintings, drawings, even some foam. We have we have one artist who they make uh, cats and dogs out of discarded flip flops. Oh wow, that's pretty specialized. I like that. Yeah. So in a moment, I'm going to probably ask you to describe specifically two or three pieces that, that are going to be in the show, just to give us a sense of the range represented. But first, let's spend a moment discussing the details of the uh, the opening reception. So it's this Saturday, March 11th, from 5 to 9 p.m. during the, the Art Walk? Yeah, it's in conjunction with St. Petersburg's Second Saturday Art Walk. So there's also, besides you know coming to the opening here, there's a free Art Walk trolley that starts here at Craftsman House, and it just makes loops all night, so you can check out all the other galleries and studios. We have a, we're up to about 50 different galleries and studios that participate in our monthly Art Walk. That's great. And it sounded like there was something kind of a distinctive, too, happening. Tell us uh, for just a quick moment about uh, Victor Bavanda. Well, really interesting. He's a 14-year-old autistic child from South Florida who does uh, who paints these amazing paintings, and a lot of what he paints are cats and dogs. So we're going to have a lot of his cat and dog paintings here. And on top of that, if you bring a photo of your pet, you can commission him to paint an actual you know photo of your dog or your cat or whatever, whatever pet you have. Wow, that sounds very... Very cool. All right, so maybe just give us a sense of one or two uh, pieces, uh, Jeff, and then I think we're going to be just about out of time at that point. Okay. Gosh, well, we have uh, one artist who does a lot of blown glass pieces, everything from little mini cats and dogs to larger pieces. Uh, we'll get a, I know in, in a lot of the, the ads we've been doing for this, we have one of her pieces, which is this big long wiener dog that she does out of blown glass. Um, also, there's a big metal cat head made out of an uh, old... John Deere tractor, and a lot of ceramic, whether it's polymer clay or regular clay, a bunch of ceramic cats and dogs. Cool. And, and, you know, we are partnering with Pet Pal Animal Shelter and St. Petersburg Natural Pet Food Store, and Pet Pal is going to have one of their pet photographers on hand during the opening, so if you can come with a pet, they'll be snapping photos. Sounds like a lot of cool things. If you're a, a cat or dog person, there's all kinds of stuff for you, not not counting just the art itself. So that's great. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. And you know, it is such a dog-friendly city here that uh, just makes sense for us. For sure. Okay, so I guess people could find out more by going to the uh, Craftsman House Gallery website. There's also a Facebook invitation specifically for the opening that people can search for pretty easily, I believe, right? Yeah. We're also going to have a raffle during the opening that, you know, a lot of our partners have donated prizes for the raffle, so cool. just an added bonus. Nice. All right, Jeff. Well, this sounds fantastic. Thanks so much for making the time to join us on Talking Animals. I appreciate it. Great. Love it and love WMNF. Thank you. Thanks. Goodbye. Bye. All right, coming up, Scott Elliott will be here from noon to three with a glorious three hours of music, followed by Robin Hooper with another three hours of music. And we just keep the music coming as we roll in our block of Latin programming and beyond. We have just about reached today's edition of Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. I hope you'll join me next Wednesday when my guest will be Rick Yoakum, Executive Director of the Humane Society of Manatee County, which is gearing up for the Bradenton Spring Festival, March 25th organization's biggest fundraiser of the year. So we'll hear all about that. It's Talking Animals on WNF Tampa, NPR News, and then Scott Elliott. Thanks.